Welcome to this episode, and it's an episode I think everyone's long been waiting for, because if it's an episode that might break the series, it will be this one. It's, let me tell you something, during our year-long quest to watch every match that Dave Meltzer's rated five stars or higher, and we always put in that disclaimer of or higher, and once we've had one example beforehand, this is the one that you were probably thinking of when this series began. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, with me as always is my co-host... Simon Cross. Simon, what's the match that we're talking about? The match that probably, if it hadn't been given what Dave gave it, this podcast might not exist. Or at least this this series, this year-long series might not exist. What are we covering today, Simon? We are covering Wrestle Kingdom 11. The G1 Climax winner is Kenny Omega, and he is taking on, as his is right as the G1 Climax runner, the IWGP champion in one, Kazuchika Okada. It's January the 4th, 2017. It's the six-star match that broke the internet. Um, this is the one. This, this is, is the one. This is the one. And I think why it's also the one is that this is the one that really recalibrated what star ratings were because Dave Meltzer did in theory give the the one match that we've uh, rated our top one in all the previous debriefs since we saw it of Mitsuhara Masawa against Toshiaki Kawada on the 3rd of June 1994 as a six star match so 23 and a half years later we're getting this one and I will get I, I thought it might be worth just bringing it up now actually getting from the Observer Newsletter itself, what Dave Meltzer wrote about this match. Do you want to hear that? Lay it on us. Okay. Kenny Omega and Kazuchika Okada may have put on the greatest match in pro wrestling history in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom 11 on the 4th, on the 4th of January at the Tokyo Dome. The 46-minute, 45-second classic, coming at the end of a show that lasted 5 hours and 40 minutes... Set New Japan's all-time record for live foreign streaming viewers, peaking at about 7.30am Eastern Time. Okada retained the IWGP heavyweight title, so spoilers, but there we go. <laughs> After a spinning, jumping tombstone piledriver and a fourth Rainmaker, featured nearly every element of a classic match, from intensity, crowd heat, tremendous psychology, off-the-charts athleticism, hard-hitting, timing, innovation, high-risk and dangerous moves. The key to the story is that Omega never once got to hit his one-winged angel finisher, and even in defeat, came out of the show being almost clearly the best big-match wrestler on the planet. While watching the show, it felt like the time and place to do the title change, but the argument was it being too early in the Okada reign. Still, based on the performance and the performance of Omega in the build to the show, by all rights, Omega should win the championship at some point this year. Part of it is that they are going to expand internationally, Omega is the best face of the company, and because he can talk different languages, it is ridiculously good athletically, and has so much charisma at this point. But losing this way was almost better, because it'll mean more when he wins it, particularly if it's in June in Osaka, which will be a hot crowd and right before the US push. Get to the match itself, uh, as I'm going on, but continue. It's interesting um, that yeah, we've always talked about when we've seen like head drops or like um, wincing towards the end of King's Road, especially, uh, you know, are, are the moves getting too dangerous and knowing what we know now? It's interesting to obviously at the time Dave wrote this, we're post uh, Benoit and such so that he's still saying danger moves, but I guess it's how you make a move look dangerous. Uh, maybe I'm just picking up that thread a little bit too much. Mm. Although there are moments in this match, where I'm like, oh, yeah. So to go into the 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 story of this match was uh, greater than the match itself. It was essentially a battle for the future. I mean, they literally say it in the video package going in, because New Japan is at the start of this attempt at a global expansion, 
And the question is, I guess, that is the fear of New Japan loyalists and natives is does that mean the Japanese identity of New Japan pro wrestling is going to be swallowed whole by the need to appeal to an outsider's market? Mm. And so, and by the gaijin of the Bullet Club. And so, yeah, this ultimately is going back to what made Japanese wrestling huge in the first place. The native hero, Ricky Dozan, Antonio Inoki, Shohi Baba, Tatsumi Fujinami, taking on uh, Tiger Mask, taking on the Gaijin figure, the Luthers, the Sharp Brothers, the uh, Carl Gotches, the Billy Robinsons, the Andre the Giants, the Hulk Hogan's, the uh, Va- the Big Van Vaders. The Eddie Guerrero's, the Chris Jericho. Not in the the main event scene. uh, The Dynamite Kids. I'm talking about the main event scene here. Yeah. And Omega is a representative of that with the Bullet Club, but him also saying that he is the better choice for them to look out globally. And I guess within that, there's that fear of losing your identity to a globalist idea. But there is. But again, they are leaning into it. Yes, but why can't it be their guy that appeals to the foreign fan base mm. and i think that's the key like you say that's the key to the story because kenny omega can speak japanese and he can speak english and he's the foreign uh and he says i'm the best for the company but okada says i will defend new japan's honor i'm new japan's person which is funny because he was still you know like i said there's that clear factional um identity within new japan well they are announced still... as members of the faction yeah of, of their respective factions and he is still a member of chaos but there's significance that before he makes his entrance every both guys get like a pre-video package before their entrance. Kenny Omega's is a recreation of the Terminator. And then Kazuchiro Kada's is... Uh, it starts off as a shot of like the whole like solar system. Zooms into Earth. Zooms into Japan. Zooms into the Tokyo Dome. And then it's the symbol of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And then Kazuchiro Kada comes out literally saying, I am the symbol of New Japan. You know? Yeah. Sorry, I could only just remember the last bit for that one for some yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. So it's I... like, it's not just, and I think that's one of the key things about this match is that this is the first time of Kazuchika Okada going into Wrestle Kingdom as the undisputed one top ace face of the company because he'd won it from Hiroshi Tanahashi finally at the previous Wrestle Kingdom. He is the main guy now. He's the number one native talent and he stands for New Japan, mm. but also he is the perennial champion. And so the key to this now is that when you're the champion, it's a different thing to when you're the challenger, and you have to weather the storm. And so much of this match, especially the middle portion, is him weathering the storm of Kenny Omega, because so many people came out of this match thinking this was the star-making turn of Kenny Omega. So before we get into what everything that Omega does, I want it to be made clear that Kazuchika Okada was ultimately kind of being selfless in allowing Omega to have so much of the um, lion's share of the attention in what all the spectacular moves were in the match. But he was still doing what was the defending champion's role of, you know, coming out victorious but making his opponent look amazing. Which which was never what Tanahashi had to do. Like with Tanahashi and Okada, they were both working with each other, making each other look good. Do you know know where I'm coming from? I do. Um, I think one moment that really sums that up and I'm going to jump over all over the place with this one. One, um, I think, because there's just so much of like little things all over the spot, all over the shop, rather. Um, there's a moment where Omega's out outside the ring, and it's I think it gets up to like 15, the count, and Okada goes out and gets him. Um, now, before Okada would go out and get an opponent and roll him back in. He wouldn't take a count on, but it's just proved that he's the man. This time it, it just felt a little different to me. I don't know if I'm reading between the lines too much, uh, but this time when he did it, it just felt like he was doing it to make sure that there was no asterisk against the defense of new Japan. Like, and he is the guy to represent new Japan and as fuss must win cleanly. Well, Whereas think- before it's about proving you're the better man. Mm. But I think it's got the added caveat of being a rep- true representative and you can't take that shortcut. It's more than just personal to him. It's other people's expectations of him, which are now weighing on his shoulders. 
But Omega did something similar to Naito in their match where he went out of the 18 and broke the, t- the counts to hit uh, Naito, I think, with like a, a dragon suplex on the apron or something. Yeah. I think there is that. He wants to win it in the ring. He doesn't want to win it that way. But also, I think it's also he smells the blood in the water and he figures that if Kenny Omega crawls back into the ring at the 19 count, he's unnecessarily giving him four extra seconds to recover. So he throws him into the ring and then follows up with a crazy awesome missile drop kick that oh, sends brutal. Omega flying across the ring. Um, uh, so I think there's as much as it is strategy as anything else. Mm. Um, but yeah, to go back to Omega as well, it's like, like I said in the previous match, his physicality and his movement is this new step of where wrestling's going and his quickness. Uh, and his suddenness, but also how he will put the brakes on a run or anything. It's, it's, it's popular in New Japan, but Omega's the one that I really notice it with the most, where like there's the intricate run sequences, and he will make a sudden stop. He won't run into the ropes. He'll kind of go to a sliding stop and then re, you know, charge back yeah. in and so on. It's a lot intric- more intricate, So it, because it's going at a faster pace, because they're not covering the, the length of the ring each time to do the moves. They're, like, minimizing their movements... Uh, in in that time, in that moment, you know, and it's a great way of emphasizing that erratic, jerky nature yeah. that he has. That we've covered, uh, talked about previously. Um, what I've noticed is the way he spits sort of changed from the last time he spat at someone. He's gone for the more spray approach this time, um, which is more of a better visual, I think. Omega's Especially with fantastic. like Omega's fantastic at visuals. That bit at the start after Okada's made his entrance, he, you know, he's made it rain as a rainmaker. Yeah. With the money, with the Kazuchika Okada yen dollars falling down, and Omega's able to catch one of the do- one of the dollar bills, holds it in his hand, and then scrunches it up whilst looking at Okada and throwing it away. I mean, that's that's a visual that's been picked up and used in multiple videos since yeah. then. I there's one bit just after that, and I think it's Okada's just gone onto the turnbuckle mm. uh, during the entrance, obviously like gestured to the crowd, and you go back to Omega, and he's just got like a semi like it's all right. Mm-hmm. face on it when he's just looking at Okada's like, yeah, Omega has fun. that look of like he's got this confidence that this is my time nothing's going to beat me at this point yeah. and he's got the young bucks there with him like as uh, his corner men throughout the whole match do love the fact that they're, uh, they've got a microphone near them more often than not because some of the stuff they say is just they stay in character for the whole thing there's no winking to the there's no fourth wall breaking yeah. this time you know and that sense of them as the elite. I mean, Omega has the elite logo on on the butt of his trunks as well. Which is because they're a subdivision of the Bullet Club at this point, and he is technically leader of both. But mm. you know, you'd think you'd, it's like the be... pack within the NWO, essentially. Yeah, back when it was Hall and Nash and and, and Sean Waltman six, like a subgroup or, or the Brood within the corporate ministry. If you want to go weirder than that. Um, but it's like, um, so yeah, like, so the whole thing is that Omega feels like he's got the, like he's, he's got the, the beating of Okada in this match and he does dominate at the start with the, like, a he holds onto a headlock for ages and he really won't let it go. Uh, Okada like backdrops out of it at one point and he still holds on, tries to backdrop out of it, but he holds on to it. Um, and he, what's key is that. Instead of the usual targeting of the knee or the arms that we've seen in this one, he goes for the back. And I think that the significance to that is that he is not trying to neutralize Okada's strengths. He's working towards his own strengths. Yes. He's not, he's not like Tanahashi, where Tanahashi was weakening Okada's main power base with his legs. Base. He was yeah. weakening where Omega targets with the one winged angel. So he's weakening the neck and the back and the kidneys. Whereas uh, mm. when Tanahashi was doing it in one of the matches that we covered, he would either go for the knee, which is Tanahashi's traditional point of attack, um, but it doesn't really factor into either High Fly Flow or the Rainmaker, or when he went and utterly tried to take Okada's arm apart because that would weaken him for his Rainmaker. Yeah. Well, it just speaks to Omega's confidence, and it also speaks to the reverence of the, the one-winged angel, which is something... As you've already mentioned, is uh, labelled throughout, and he never quite gets to hit it. But the sheer panic and uh, change in atmosphere of both the crowd and the commentary team when he's even close 
it, it is a murder kill death shot. Well, there's point. a bit. I think that one of the best moments in um his G1 climax final against Hiroki Goto is that I think he hits a Phoenix Splash, Kotobushi's move. Goto kicks out of that, so he's had to throw aside his golden lovers. He hits him with the Bloody Sunday, Prince Devitt's finishing move, the first version of the Bullet Club. Goto kicks out of that. He hits the Styles Clash, the second version of the Bullet Club. Hiroki Goto, he kicks out of that, but then he hits the One-Winged Angel, winning the G1 Climax, the first Bullet Club leader to do that. He's main eventing Wrestle Kingdom, the first Bullet Club leader to achieve that. So New Japan in themselves have pushed Omega as the ultimate. He's done what no other Bullet Club member's been able to do at this point. Mm. Well, he's fresher. He's, mm. I think, in their head, they're like, we're going to have him for longer as well. Well, he never... Yeah, he... Uh, and until, like, the craziness of AEW, if AEW hadn't come into being, he'd be there to this day, I think. I don't yes. know that the WWE, even though they would have thrown as much money as they possibly could at him. And maybe he had his price, but, you know... It would have been harder. But um, but yeah, like Omega dominates on inside the ring. And then when it goes outside the ring, and Okada gets aggressive and he hits like a draping DDT. He hits a diving crossbody on the outside. What do you think of how far away the ringside fans are? It's like having an athletics track around a football pitch. Ah, oh, well, it's terrible then, isn't it? Ah, so all the atmosphere is just gone. Game's gone. Game's gone. Uh, all right. Uh, no, well, it... <clears throat> I knew you'd make the West Ham reference. Mm. Um... No, I'd... it's different. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's just different. It helps in this match, especially. Uh, one for Okada's bar- barrier leap crossbody. And um, later on in the match, when... Um, I think Omega... Does Omega dive into the crowd in this yeah, one? Yeah, he does at one yes. point. Yeah. But um, we're not getting... That. So like when it's on the outside, Okada dominates, which is usually how the heel excels. Like, and Ric Flair's getting dominated on the mat, and you take them outside and bring it, you know, make it a brawl. And it's really mm. the other way around. And Okada's, cl- it seems like Omega's got to Okada, because Okada brings out a table, which they point out in commentary. Omega are putting through a table, like, in the build-up to the to this event. And so it's a little bit of, re- like, Okada's thing in a revenge. And again, it's Chekhov's gun. So they're yeah. setting this up for later on in the show, later on in the match. Uh, but yeah, like you say, some of the moves and the execution of them, like there's a moment where, like like I said, we mentioned earlier, Okada's missile dropkick that gets um, Omega flat in the chest and he takes a flying bump into the other end of the ring's ropes. But Okada, Omega also hits a missile dropkick to the back of Okada's head. Oh. No, it's... <sighs> it's it looks great, but... It's it's hard to protect yourself when you don't can't see it. So I want to say this at one. So Omega's been dominating, and so um, but then Okada surprises him with a flapjack and gets him in that sort of figure four STF hold. And yeah. I just want to make this note because of how much hatred, boiling hatred, we have for Matt Striker. I just want to compliment Steve Carino's commentary at this point, where he explains the thinking behind someone in a submission hold in a big match that actually makes sense and is not all up his own ass about how clever he is. So I just want to give Carino plaudits for that and, more importantly, shit all over Matt Stryker one more time. Oh, there's some residual bitterness there. Mm. But you get what I like I mean about how Okada is clearly the defender at this point. Like, he's, you know, he's under siege, as a champion is, usually. Yeah. You know... Like oh, he's got the experience, and but he has to weather the storm of what Omega offers him. Well, yeah, he's, he's almost sort of swapped roles. Mm. Um, well, he has dropped what. He's yeah. now the ace. He is the guy. He's no longer the guy looking to knock someone off the perch. He is now the perch. Yeah, and I know. Yeah, you say like champions wrestle differently, but it's mm. it's quite weird to see uh, a man who was just so assured, a man who was quite. Had a air element of Omega's arrogance and confidence about him when he like, I know I've beaten Tanahashi. I can beat Tanahashi on the grand stage. Uh, whereas Omega's like, I've won the G1. It's my first ever G1. Probably knock this guy off. No problem at all. Like, he's the person that's 
well, it's like affronted you... almost by the arrogance rather than the yeah. affrontee. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, he hits another really nasty drop kick as a baseball slide, though, to Okada, who's standing on the outside, and then oh, follows up with the, the speed on that. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and the just a great 30 seconds as, from an athletic point of view. Mm. Just, he executes that brilliantly. Which is Kodrabushi's trademark move as well. So, again, reference. Little nod there. there. Yeah. He can't help it, can he? <laughs> um,. So, yeah, and, and then we bring the table back at that point, and he does a really nasty double stomp on him. So, again, just the nasty, you know, ruthless elements. So, yeah, there's viciousness coming into play now, because I think Omega's starting to get... I don't know if in his head he thought it, like, storyline-wise, where he just feel, thought it would be slightly easier. Uh, again, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm just going between the lines a little bit, but... It's starting well, to, uh, great, Okada's starting to grate on him that he's still hanging around. Maybe it's almost with Okada, it's like he's gauging how how far he's got to push himself. And at this point, <laughs> like when he when he drop kicks Omega to the outside a bit later on uh, to get him, to give himself a breather, it's like okay, I know this guy's gonna be big. You know, he's he's, <laughs> he's a this is the toughest challenge that I've had so far. Yeah, because also Omega tries to set up the table. Um, Red Shoes, for once, actually is effective in his job and prevents Omega from doing it. Aye, aye. I love me some Red Shoes, but New Japan referees are not given the best of respect by either the performers or the way that they're booked. Um, but then it becomes, like I said, we've set up this Chekhov's gun because then Okada is like, I've got to, I've got to do some serious damage now. Um, like I said, when someone's weathered that, like taking a big long beating, usually yeah. they come back with something big, like. Tanahashi with a high fly flow to the outside from the top rope or whatever to try and make as much impact with one move as the other guys made for like 10. I mean, Omega's been in control for like 10 or so minutes at this point. Mm. And he's still sort of in control up until the very last moment with this because the backdrop is a defensive move. It's not yes. an offensive move. Yes. And so, I think he's thinking V-trigger. Yeah. That's both, why he's thinking so fast. They're both trying to do moves onto the other person to take them through the table on the outside. Yeah. From the apron, at one point, Omega looks like he's going to do the, the one-winged angel to Okada, but Okada escapes, slips... Oh, and the commentary the team are just like, oh my god, if he hits that, the man might die. <laughs> yeah. um, That's how you do the move, though. So yeah, they're all trying to do it, and then finally, Omega comes charging at Okada, and Okada turns it into a backdrop. And the way that Omega's arms are flailing throughout the flight of the... Again, he's taking it in an entirely different way, and he just explodes through that table. It's the height and the the speed as well. But it's so dangerous as well because it's like the the, the Japanese tables are so narrower and they're not designed like with essentially a cut in the middle so that they'll go through very easily. He had to do... He had to put his full weight into that, landing in the right way. And what's scary to me... Well, two things were scary. One, you could tell that it was... You knew that it was on a slightly heightened elevation... So you could have had a situation like what ended Rick Rude's career when Sting gave him a, a plancher on the outside and just the Rude's back hit the corner of the like the heightened stage. Uh, I, yep. Same thing that happened to Shawn Michaels when he got backdropped out of the ring and hit the casket, just the, the edge of the casket. But also, just like I said, the, the wood is clearly of a different kind of wood, and that was shattering. You could have got something in your art. You know, there was a sharpness to that wood that's not there in the in the WWE's tables. And yeah. the frame, the metal frame, stays intact. So, again, there's just... It doesn't so even many... really bend, does it? It's just like one of the legs collapses. There are so many jags and points and splinters and everything there that you just... You're going a bit Helen Lovejoy now. Won't someone please think it's of scary. the children? It's scary. So this is where we talked about earlier where he brings Omega in for the count to print the count out. And then he does the top rebel, he does the rainmaker pose, and that's the sign of we're into the next step. It's kind of act three. Of a, of Camera a angle on that yeah. as well. Yeah. Because well, it, it also... just zooms out, but still focuses on um, on um, Okada. Well, Okada's like the centre of frame, and, and then it just yeah. shows the scope. And also it's a sign of, like, I'm so in control, I can control the cameras, <laughs> you know. And again, it's the most perfect venue for that as well, because, you know, doing it in Krakowin Hall is one thing, doing it in Sumo Hall is another thing, doing it in the Budokan is another thing, but doing it in the Tokyo Dome, 
You know, the way they light it allows you yeah. to not know that it's not sold out, but you can think it's sold out, you know. Although I think they're getting more and more numbers as, the, as it goes on over the years. Mm. They quote like it's 40,000 odd yeah. people. So as it's a sign that it's the next stage of the battles, then when we get probably the scariest spot that's not the backdrop through the table. And really Omega has to hit something of equal um, high stakes. And so what he thinks to do... He's trying to put it, a card into a wheelchair. Well, they essentially tease it just like they teased the one-winged angel through the table. And you thought, well, it's too dangerous a spot for them to actually do it. Yeah. But then they actually do it, which is a top rope dragon <sighs> suplex. Now, I didn't see it the first time around, but the slow motion replay they put in. Akara's neck is at an angle when he hits that. Yeah, <laughs> hits I, the floor. I wasn't sure. When I looked at it again, I thought, did he actually manage to get his shoulder to take a lot of the impacts. I think his shoulder might have landed first. Because I refuse to believe you can't land head first like that and continue. Certain people can. Oh, well, I am referencing Brock Well, again, Lesnar. it was, it was Carino. I think it was Carino who said it at this point. When he's having neck fusion surgery, he'll remember this. And it's not him being yeah. the show off or anything. It's just very uh, much maybe, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I can't remember the positioning of the shoulders. I, I was so focused on the head and neck. So yeah. perhaps you're right, and the shoulder did hit the mat first. Um, I'd, I'd wheel to you on that point. But regardless, okay. there's still a lot of trauma to the head and neck of there. Of course, of course. Now, would it be less impactful if he'd done a full rotation and landed on his front? Would it look any... Like, when, when he goes for the three count, would it look any less of a... That's the finish, you know? That's um, Sadly, with what we've come to expect at this point in wrestling, and even then, because this isn't that long ago, yes, I, I think it would have had less of an impact. Mm. But then again, moves moves are only as good as how well you build them, but, but the I horse is already yeah. well, the stable. Question is, like, would this be a bigger match Without those two, would this be less of a match without those two spots? Without the backdrop into the table and without the top rope dragon suplex? Because also, make a note, at this point, we have not seen one tombstone from Okada. We've not seen, uh, we've only seen one drop kick from Okada, and that's the corner drop kick, not the, you know, the, the main drop kick that he does. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen a single V trigger from Kenny Omega. Obviously, no one winged angel. You know, <laughs> neither of them have even brought out any of the big moves yet at this point. So. I mean, if you pardon the pun, they're setting the table. Uh, and this is like the little flashpoints they've got to get you to the next stage, I guess. Yeah. If, if you had an equivalent to swap them with, um, I, I'm just very, very much struck by the visual of the table bump. Um, the top rope dragon suplex. <sighs> See, I'd say I think if you it was change a- that for something else. I think if it was not on a, on a, that elevated platform that ran the risk of the landing back first on the on the edge of it, yeah. And if it was a traditional table as opposed to these Japanese ones, mm. then I think the backdrop, you know, it's no more dangerous than I mean, it's less dangerous than many of the TLC falling through like four table spots that you have. You've had yeah. guys like the Undertaker do, you know. So Christ. the 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 dragon suplex, I never want to see that ever again. No, it's just I how do you really you can't defend yourself? You just can't, uh. well, you can. It, I mean, o- Omega releases the the full Nelson pretty much immediately, or I would assume yeah. he would. You know, I don't know. Maybe like get put a forearm down well, so first. To be fair, this is the only time we see any head drop in this match, and given that we were going so we were so in love with the All Japan Kings Road, and admittedly none of them were from the top rope, but you know. Cumulatively, you know? oh, <laughs> yes. no, no, no. You're you are right, and uh, we we did fall in love with that style, and are we therefore part of the problem? Mm. Uh, I, again, with head drops now, I think I think wrestling in general now, for it to be considered the true Gary, I think there's just got to be an element of da- danger, and I think some of that danger is cultivated unnecessarily. But we're through the looking glass now with that. It's gone. We're going to have to add to our, uh, uh, let me tell you something, bingo through the looking glass coming up. Um, But now at this point, it is that sense of anything, any big move that hits now could be the end of the match. But they still go on for a very long time. 
is it to the point of milking it too far? We'll have to discuss as we go on. But like at this point, the V triggers and the Rainmakers and the more of the teasing of the One Winged Angel start coming into effect. So o- Omega hits a V trigger and a Reverse Hurricane Rana and another V trigger. Um, but Okada then does a you know another sign of like a super crazy good athlete. He lands out of the One Winged Angel. It's kind of like how it's like how you could tell the super athletes. I don't think I mentioned it in the match, but like when when John Cena does the the AA, there you can tell the great athletes are the ones that can do the like rotate their body much enough in midair that they can land on their feet. Yeah, so guys like Shawn Michaels can do it. Guys like Punk AJ Styles it. can do it. Seth Rollins, CM Punk, not so much. Lands on his ass. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, he goes for it, but doesn't quite. He goes for it, but he doesn't do it. Yeah, you know. So that's another sign of just how good Okada is. You know, he makes it so. Um, uh, seamless. And then- it looks like, because obviously they make reference to how like Gato's got him set up perfectly in the commentary. It just does look like that something that would have been like drilled, yeah. like the same way that Tony Pulis or Sam Allardyce would drill defending set pieces into a team. It's just like muscle well, memory. They're for pushed it. so hard on their bridging and their neck muscles and their flexibility, but I don't know how much that. I mean, I guess it is a bridging of some description, but also just the landing on the feet. Yeah, the balance that these guys have is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. But what I mean is, like, you could storyline wise, you could imagine Gado mm. with a chalkboard going right when he does this, mm. you do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, like he has all these post. different. Yeah, well, he has all these different ways of reversing out of it. Yeah, um, we'll talk about another one in a bit. Then Okada hits his tombstone and his rainmaker, and that could be the finish. It has been in the past, but Omega kicks out, and Okada does have that kind of. He has that surprise. I like that face though, because he's not hamming it. He's not hamming it too much. A la it Undertaker. reminds me a bit of um, Davy Boy's face after Bret Hart kicks out of the running power slam. It's mm. like, a, do I have anything left to beat this guy with? Yeah, he's battered me all throughout most of this match. I've I've weathered it and I've hit him with my move, and he's still not. I can't pin him. See now, what you've done there, Logan, is you've you've given the re- wrestling. Uh, equivalent and i'm going to give a non-wrestling equivalent it's like the the chandelier seed in only fools and horses well, they're like the shot in his face <laughs> you, you know what i mean though like del boy's just yeah, face of like the like the the sense of uh, yeah where do we go from here american listeners may need to use wikipedia yeah. at this point i love how omega tries to fight back at this point but he's got very weak punches that aren't making any effect on okada so then he just does a heel gaijin thing and he pokes him in the eyes. I do again. His his expressiveness in his movements makes his eye poke so compelling to see because he just goes for it. It's not like a little like <laughs> beep, like like you know, like someone just lightly ringing a doorbell. He's just like trying to rip the pupil out of your off of it off of it with his finger. So Okada just returns fire with another one of those drop kicks that sends Kenny flying into the corner. I love hearing the young books at this point. Like, he can't beat you. He can't beat you. It reminds me a lot of the Karate Kid. I was expecting one of them to go, <laughs> put him in a body bag, Kenny! Ah! <laughs> oh, or like in The Simpsons. Nah, that happens all the time. Someone else's blood got on me. <laughs> Wait, that is mine. You made me bleed my own blood, Simpson. <laughs> Omega uh, then does the same move that he did to Naito at one point, how he escapes the uh, the Destino by turning it into the sort of package tombstone. So he does the same thing to Okada off of the tombstone. And then we get one of those forearm exchanges, and again it's like they both suddenly get a burst of energy like a second wind because it speeds up and speeds up, and then just Omega goes into hyperdrive. It's almost like a, it's almost Street Fighter-esque, actually, when you suddenly get that... And I... Bet that's an inspiration to how he go, you know, because he is such a huge gamer. I'm sure that's intentional. Where he just suddenly, like, in a sudden, like I said, with a quickness that we've never really seen before, a snapdragon suplex followed up by another V trigger, and just again his execution, his movement, so awesome that gets a long two count. Then he does one of my favorite versions of his V trigger, where he goes uh, like Okada's crawling against the ropes, and he just goes flying into the ropes. Oh, is this like the one where he sort of slides across into the yeah, trigger? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that because this is it. Just something about hitting downward 
just makes the move look more vicious. Yeah. And also, I think that one, he does it again later, but the camera's not literally right by it, where the you know his knee just basically is going into the screen. You think it's going to be yeah. like 3D or something. You're expecting it to come out like a train pulling into this Victorian station. Um, <laughs> so then he goes for the one-winged angel again. But again, Okada's got another counter, and like the best of ones, it's an encounter that only he can do because he's able to grab Omega's wrist and turn it into a short Rainmaker. Do love that because the wrist control is a harken back to his big battle at Wrestle wrist Kingdom control, as well. Control, that's the key, and it is the key later on. In the, and he does it again, I think, at that point, doesn't he? Um, uh, yeah, V trigger into the rose one with Angel, grabs the wrist. A short Rainmaker, and he maintains wrist control, and Omega's desperately trying to kick him off. With two V-triggers. Yeah, with, like, yeah, he, he, like, even, he's doing V-triggers whilst being held by the wrist, but Okada's able to basically, you know, like you say, the key of maintaining wrist control, as from the Tanahashi match, he batters him with another uh, short Rainmaker. He's holding on to that wrist, like, the same way someone's grandmother holds on to a toddler as she's, like, taking him to the shops for the first time. Like you're not cross, you're not running across that road. You're with me to the bitter end. And again, like with the Tanahashi match, like Omega starts going towards what uh, Okada offers as well because they both duck Rainmakers. Each other one's trying, um, but then Omega hits the version of Okada's drop kick to Okada, and then follows it up with a ripcord V trigger. So it's like, like he was if he'd have done the Rainmaker, and it was weirdly kind of delayed, almost like. I don't know if that was a screw-up or if it was, like, to play off how exhausted Okada was. I, I think he was making Okada think it was the Rainmaker. Well, and yeah, then yeah, v- and so he can't... Like, if, if it would have been awesome if, like, Omega ha- Okada had, like... You could have almost seen him ducking, but that just means he ducks into... He ducks into the knee. The, knee, the V-trigger knee. So he... And, um... Again, one-winged angel, but again a third time Okada has a count for it. This one turning it into the tombstone which puts some extra stank on by doing it as a spinning, jumping tombstone. So anything The Undertaker can do at WrestleMania 26, Okada can do better. Again, he just does that, like with the Tanahashi match, that scream of, like, a final energy of just, like, this is it! I, I, I guess he, maybe you say he's going Super Saiyan? Is that yeah. how you would pronounce it? Super Saiyan or Saiyan. Gets the ripcord, sure so which. it's only the second time he's... Even though um, Meltzer says it's the fourth... Rainmaker. It's only the second full Rainmaker with the ripcord element to it. And that's enough for the three counts. Now, we've already talked in the past and we've mocked it and I'm not even going to say right now, I don't, I'm never going to give a match six stars. My favourite match of all time will be a five star match and there's just degra- there's gradations within five stars. If it's an absurd structure, it should at least still have a structure, you know? Yeah. If you have a fan, if your storytelling has a fantasy element, there has to be rules within that fantasy. You know. Yeah. So if we're going to use an arbitrary mathematical system to an artistic pursuit, it has to be mathematical, and mathemat- mathematics is all about the laws. So to me, you have to have it limited to five. I'll let you decide, sir, if you want to break your system. But to me, this is a five-star match. But it's not a six-star match because there's no such thing as a six-star match. For me, this is also... Look, I gave the other six-star match five stars. So I already made, I already pinned my colours to the mast there. Because, quite frankly, if I was going to break the system, I would have probably broken the system back then. Mm. Having set the precedent, you know where I stand... This is five stars mm-hmm. because you're right. Six is to quote. Uh, it's just just too much. It's just unnecessary. I think the sixth star. Do you think, in a way, it's been an albatross around its neck? Um, because, like I said, like everyone mm. discussed it, but then it's almost like within that you're discussing the absurdity of star ratings anyway, and the absurdity of a six star rating. Because like, I remember listening to no, Bob, I to, think um, it got... Bob Ray's uh, comments about it in the podcast, and he said it was an amazing match. It's interesting that of all the things that it's a point of contention, it's a point of contention to Bob Ray. He didn't like the table spots because he thought an IWGB Heavyweight Championship match should be 
a notice a match where there are disqualifications that mean something and you can't incorporate a table into the match, especially in full view of the referee. And so for him, that disqualifies it from the perfect score because there's an imperfection within it. I could follow that chain of logic if you're going down that route. Um, I don't think it has subtracted from the match per se. I think it's a case of the six star got everyone talking about it. The match rode that crest itself, and then it split off to six star ratings being talked about and like the whole system being broken. And the match sort of did not get embroiled in that as such. The the conversation outgrew that individual match. Mm. I feel. So I think the match got away with it and riding the crest when it was together as a package got a lot of new eyes on the product. I think this is one of the first New Japan matches. I think it is the first New Japan match. A New Japan uh, Wrestle Kingdom main event I actually sat down and watched was this match. Well, look at it this way. A year from now, Wrestle Kingdom's main event is Kazuchika Okada against Tetsuya Naito and Kenny Omega against Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho would not be appearing at WrestleMania t- Wrestle Kingdom 12 if it weren't for this match. No. And again, Chris Jericho being available was one of the reasons why AEW is in existence now. So again, another, like, culturally, historically, this may be the most important match of the decade, n- including WWE. I'm trying to think of a WWE match from this decade, except for CM Punk versus John Cena, which just sneaks in at the start. That's more important. None comes to mind. Because I think this is the first time that people who know everything about WWE, this was the biggest non-WWE story, I think, ever because of the six-star rating. Yeah. And... I mean... So it must have attracted more eyes to New Japan's products. And whilst it was a disappointing number, there aren't 6,000 people in the Houston arena without, you know, this match. Without this. So there's maybe no, like, there's no say... royal quest without this match, and there's no AEW without this match because this match also makes Kenny Omega probably the hottest name in wrestling for the next at least year. Yeah, and it's mad to think that it's all down to one man putting a rating in a magazine. And we've still got more to discuss. The problem with this now is well, not the problem, but the key thing with this is this: this not only breaks the internet, it breaks Meltzer. Yes, because. There are now, subsequent to this, I'm just going to try and get some stats up. Because after this, he now starts rating beyond the five-star scale. Now, people yeah. have said that he does, he has in the past rated other matches, um, he's rated other matches five-star plus. But I guess yeah. it's kind of like saying an A++, which you can do, you know. It's like, it's like a guy at our school got an A in one of his A-levels or GCSEs, and he got a letter telling him he was one of, like, the top 50 or so kids in the whole year for highest marks or whatever. So that's, like, the equivalent of a five-star plus. But it's not giving, like I said, this mathematical certainty to it. Because, okay, so let's look at this. 2017, subsequent to this one... Which is 4th of January, so we're we're at the start of the year. So subsequent to this, he gives another match six stars. He gives another match six and a quarter stars. And he gives another match five and three quarter stars. <sighs> we went 20, what, three years, 20, 22, 23 years between six star matches and then like what, two come along at once? Five, two, three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in 2018, let's have a look at what he gave in 2018. In 2018, he gave, uh, he gave out four five and a half star matches, one five and three quarter star match, and then came the next step on this, the seven-star match. And in this year so far, he's given three matches five and a quarter stars, three matches five and a half stars, and three matches five and three quarter stars. I mean, there are moments where you just have to recalibrate and look at to be what's fair, in front of you. This isn't the first match to break the system. The first no. match that broke the system before Dave Meltzer's was seen as like the be-all, end-all of it was Jerry Lawler against uh, Terry Funk in Memphis in 1981, I think, where Jim Cornette and the other guy who were give, who invented the rating system broke it broke the four-star measure, which was how star ratings were working in 
Four was the best in, at the time. It was yes. zero to four, wasn't it? Yeah, zero to four with half star ratings in newspapers. Like that's how, that was the scale that Roger Ebert always used. Yeah, and it's the scale that some people still use to this day. Um, like there are there are movie critics that I follow that use the four star rating system. Um, the Wrestling with Regret guy Brian Zane for the longest time was using the four star system. So it has more cultural weight in in America than it does uh, anywhere else. Mm. The four star system. Um, so it's not the first one to do it, but as long as Meltzer's had it, and also five stars is culturally significant. Like like YouTube videos used to have star rating systems. Netflix shows had star rating systems. And Initially, it was always yeah. that that five out of five thing. Yeah. Um, which you never get like quick like quickly. That would be impossible. It would always be like a four point nine something. And uh, well, there's no there's no other medium I'm aware of that uses quarter stars. Yeah, but it, but this is it. This is it when you do they do stars now because it ends up with decimal points, and that's even worse than quarter stars in my eyes. Yeah, but anyway, I don't need to know that something's four point eight six out of five. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a mathematical calibration of averaging out. I can understand that more rather than one person specifically saying this is a... I mean, the, oh, actually, no, to be fair, there is one area that goes further, which is pitchfork, because they do rate on a, on a 100 scale, basically, of 0.0 to 10.0. So, like, you know, so to give an example, let's have a look at, like, my one of my favourite ever albums is a Funeral by Arcade Fire. And that got in Pitchfork, that got a 9.7 out of 10. Give me an album. 97%. Yeah, yeah. Give me a recent album. Um, Oh, don't, don't, don't expose me for not being with it this, this much. Uh, Like Amy Winehouse Back to Black, should we say? Which was recently voted by The Guardian, the best album of the past 20 years of the 21st century. Pitchfork gave that. Sure, Bob the Builder released an album in that time. Pitchfork gave that six point four out of ten. Mm. So you know they should be embarrassed themselves. But that so that led to my favorite, one of my favorite ever Onion articles of all time, which is Pitchfork gives music six point eight. <laughs> As a as a concept, music, a mode of creative expression consisting of sound and silence expressed through time, was given a six point eight out of ten rating in a review published Monday on Pitchfork, a well-known music criticism website. According to the review, authored by Pitchfork's editor in chief Ryan Schreiber, the popular medium that predates the written word shows promise, but nonetheless leaves the listener wanting more. Music's first offering, an eclectic, disparate, but mostly functional compendium of influences from 5000 BC to present day, hints that this trend's time may not have fully arri- may not only have fully arrived, but is already on the wane, Schreiber wrote. If music has any chance of keeping our interest, it's going to have to move beyond the same palatable but predictable notes, meters, melodies, tonalities, atonalities, timbres, and harmonies. Schreiber's semi-favourable review, which begins in earnest after a six-paragraph preamble comprising a long list of baroquely rendered, seemingly unrelated anecdotes peppered with obscure references, summarises music as a solid but uninspired effort. Coming in at an exhausting 7,000 years long, music is weighed down by a few too many mid-tempo tunes. (laughs) Most noticeably, Liebstraum No. 3 in A-flat by Franz Liszt and Closing Time by 90s alt-rock group Semisonic. <laughs> Schreiber wrote in the end though music can be brilliant at times the whole medium comes off as derivative of pavement I, I, I didn't quite inflect that pro- appropriately oh Jesus yeah closing time is mid-tempo if ever I heard it <laughs> yeah yeah ah <laughs> oh, I mean like Look, we, we always it, it, say this. It, it, it's it's all subjective, isn't it? It's a recommendation. Ultimately, that was what star ratings were always meant as—a recommendation guide. Yeah. And I thoroughly recommend that everyone watch this match. If yeah. you are a fan of wrestling, watch this match. And ultimately, like whilst opinions are subjective, some opinions do carry more weight than others. If Colonel Sanders was still alive and kicking, and he said that chicken shop down the road is fantastic, I would go to that chicken shop. Especially if it was like one of those southern fried chicken places. One of them knockoff ones. Yeah, like yeah. Memphis fried chicken. Yeah, or yeah. 
I've seen, I swear I've seen like Alabama fried chicken once before. Probably. <laughs> that one they just don't serve half their potential customers. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. But anyway. anyway. <laughs> we've got a lot more to talk about these two. This is the start of an epic quadrilogy of matches, all of which we'll be covering in this. And unlike with the Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat feud, where there were house, show. house shows, we will see this full story being told. Well, I don't think the chapter that we saw was intended to be the final chapter. The, the the you know the fourth the seven star match it was funny after this uh, one of the nicknames Kevin Ken, Kenny Omega gave himself two nicknames after this one was the best bout machine and yeah. the other one was the seventh star or seven <laughs> stars Kenny Omega because he thought well let's lean into it and go even yeah. further but then well it's it there bloody did go further but yeah. anyway if people want to get in touch with you Simon to talk more about maths and ratings and so on how can they do so. Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm sending the Simon Cross free. Free for the number of weeks Gado had Kazuchika Okada in the tactical room, looking at possible one-wing angel counters. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A at the end of Omega, N as in the double N in Kenny. That's my Twitter handle, that's my Instagram account, Facebook, Letterboxd, if you want to get in touch with the show, it's lmtyspod at gmail.com. With me, it's LorcanMullen at gmail.com. Twitter handle for LMTYS is LMTYSpod. Uh, you can listen to my podcast, Best or Worst of British, about bad British movies. We will never be going six stars with any of those movies, let me tell you that. <laughs> um, I don't know. On the bus, it's at its moments. I must forget, before I forget, someone said one of the funniest lines I heard about uh, the subsequent six stars and all the uh, hoo-ha that it re- revolved is that it turns out David Meltzer's always been rating on a 10 scale and he's only now just seen a match he really like he likes a bit more <laughs> that is terrifying if that's true <laughs> but anyway uh, there's nothing left for me to say except my name's Lorcan Mullen and my name's Simon Cross join us next time where the episode that we'll be covering is a debrief where we'll be looking at those previous 10 matches and seeing if any of them might just make their way into our top 10 and well it's only the second time we've seen a six star match and you know what happened with the first one will there be something along those lines now but other than that there's nothing left to say except thank you for letting us tell you something have a six star time if that's possible until the next time we'll meet again 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 again